Hey, let's get into the Word. Why don't you guys open up to Isaiah 47. Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. Many of you have probably heard this or seen this, or maybe you've heard it slightly misquoted, pride goes before a fall. Uh, A lot of you probably, when you think of that, you think of things where somebody does something thinking that they're something, and they end up taking a fall, literally. I can't even tell you how many times when I was first learning how to uh, dunk that I would say to all my friends, hey, check this out, I'm learning how to dunk, and then I'd go up and pull it back and slam against the rim and then fall on my back. That's what you're thinking about when you think about pride goeth before a fall. Or maybe you're thinking about that big job that you go into the interview for, right? And you think you nailed it. Like you you literally come out of the interview and you say, nailed it, got that, that was awesome. And then you realize that your fly's down and you had spinach between your teeth, right? (laughs) These are what we think about sometimes when we think about pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. It's when we think that we're something when we're really nothing. There's a quick story I'll tell you here and It's going to start out sounding like I'm really important, and then you'll see where it goes from there. When I was in high school, I literally started out with an 11-inch vertical, okay? I could barely jump over a phone book, and uh, put on a weight vest and did all this plyometrics and running and everything, and within a year, I moved from an 11-inch vertical to over over 30 inches, like 32 or 33 inches. So I could put my hand up on the backboard, up on that square, no problem. And so I got entered into a dunk contest in high school, and I thought, man... This is going to be awesome. I'm going to just, I'm going to nail this, right? Okay, so I show up to the gym and um, I look and see who my competition is. And there are two guys. One guy's named Dennis Nathan. He played for Gresham. Unfortunately, got into drugs and would have been one of the best players ever to play the game if he'd continued. And another one, many of you might know, Freddie Jones. He played for the University of Oregon and then the Pacers, right? Well, Freddie and I were on the same team and Dennis and I were on the same team. So we showed up to this gym and I thought, I'm going to take these guys, right? I'd been practicing this dunk that was really, really cool. And, and so I got the ball and I, in front of the whole stands, I went and I jumped from one side of the key, the block, went up and I touched the ball on the rim, ducked under the rim and went on the other side and dunked it, right? I thought, I came down, the crowd goes wild. I'm thinking, this is amazing, right? I just nailed it. Walked back to half court and I think I've got the thing won. Okay, well then, uh, I I believe it was uh, Dennis went next, and Dennis took the ball, and he looked at me, and he smiled, and he started running from half court, and he ran, and he jumped from the free throw line, this is a high schooler, and dunked it, no problem. Crowd goes wild, and I think to myself, oh man, I got second, dang it, you know? (laughs) You see where this is going. Now, just so you're aware, there were really only three of us, okay? (laughs) All right? So then uh, Freddie comes up, and it's in his gym, home gym. He'd been able to practice before, and he takes the ball, and he smiles at both of us, stands at half court, hucks it off the wall, starts running. It goes over the backboard. He jumps from the free throw line, catches it, and dunks it no problem. And I think to myself, I got third. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. But really, this is weightier than that. It's weightier than just losing a competition when you think you're the best. What this is talking about is the very fact that at the core of humanity's sinfulness and rebellion against God is this thing called pride or arrogance, a haughty spirit, that we set ourselves before God and higher than God as the authority. And so pride literally will go before destruction because it means we're heading to destruction if we sit in pride. 
And a haughty spirit will go before a fall because that's what happened in the garden. There was a fall because of haughtiness. In our text today, we're going to deal with this topic of pride and arrogance because we're going to see first the pride and arrogance of Babylon, the people that don't know the God of the Bible. But then unfortunately, in the next chapter, we'll see that God's people, the ones that were called not to be like this, but to follow in the image of God and his uh, compassion for society and his love and care and his humility, even being God, they're really no less arrogant than Babylon. And it's going to be kind of a depressing picture for a little bit. But as we finish off this section, we're also going to move into this new section of Isaiah, starting in chapter 49. We're just going to cover a few verses in 49 that start to speak about one individual. And we've already talked about this individual a lot as we've gone through Isaiah, this Messiah figure, this king, this one that is to come. And he's referred to as the servant. So we're going to start into what's called the second servant song in chapter 49, and we'll continue it in the weeks ahead, uh, looking at it in massive depth. But today, we're going to just really wrestle with this idea of pride and arrogance and how we as Christians defeat that. Because I would hope for every single one of us in here today, there's not one of us who claims to be a Christian that's going, no, nah, I don't want to get rid of my pride or arrogance. Are you kidding me? I like it, right? Let me just say to you, if you're that person, don't be that guy, Okay? <laughs> Uh, you want to be a Christian who is walking in humility, okay? So let's quickly review where we're at. Chapter 40 began this section of comfort to Judah because between chapters 39 and 40 is this idea that they were exiled. And historically, they went into exile for basically two generations, depending on how you define a generation. They went into Babylon as slaves. And Judah was being brought comfort in 40 because something had happened. Something very, very important had happened. A new uh, cowboy, a new sheriff was in town. You remember this map we've looked at a number of times. Well, that's pretty hard to see today. Um, but there is uh, Israel there next to the Mediterranean Sea. Um, and Babylon, Babylonia there, they had come in and they had grabbed on to the slaves and, and made slaves of Israel and taken them away. But this new kingdom, Media, or the Medes and the Persians out there uh, in the distance, they were coming to lay the smack down on Babylon. And in so doing, they would start to free the Israelites and the people from Judah to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and rebuild their country. And so Cyrus has been talked about from chapter 41 all the way through today, uh, prophetically, as this guy who is going to do this work. And this introduces him as this royal character that will act as a king, as a servant of God and a tool of God. And through Cyrus, God was going to bring deliverance to the people of Israel. Now, it's really in a very practical way. We will see as we go through the word that uh, they don't get true deliverance because they're still stuck in their old ideas and old ways. And so Cyrus may bring them physical freedom, but not the fullness of freedom. And so last week we finished off with chapter 46 in which the gods of the Babylonians were going to be brought low before Yahweh, the God of the Jews. And then Isaiah moves into this idea of not only humbling the deities, but humbling the people that worship them. So we're going to see first today, you can write this down, the pride of the Babylonians. And this is all of chapter 47, the pride of the Babylonians. Let's take a look, starting in verse 1. Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans. For you shall no more be called tender and delicate. 
Take the millstones and grind flour. Put off your veil. Strip off your robe. Uncover your legs. Pass through the rivers. Your nakedness shall be uncovered and your disgrace shall be seen. I will take vengeance and I will spare no one. Our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts is his name, is the Holy One of Israel. God had allowed Babylon in their mindset to go and and, uh, destroy and defeat Israel. He had used them as discipline for Judah. But as he is a God of justice, he won't let evil go unpunished. Remember that the God we serve is a restorer, one who brings justice and righteousness. So while he was allowing them by their free will to go and harm Judah to an extent, he also recognized that he couldn't let that go on forever. And so he's going to bring recompense upon Babylon, justice for Judah. That graphic imagery we see here is of one of the Babylonian daughters being stripped of her clothing, being taken as a slave, and being drugged across rivers to the place where she will become enslaved. It's exactly what happened to Israel and Judah as they were brought into captivity. Now you might say, how could the good God that we serve say this? Well, the reality is, is guys, this is what happens when you give yourself over not to God but to the world. It's dog eat dog and someone will always be the bigger dog. And if you give yourself over to that kind of a mentality, a mentality that is based in arrogance and lack of humility, pride, someone with more pride will come along and destroy you at some point. And God is allowing this to play out. And this is the method in which the Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, will once again bring justice for his people Judah. And so we're going to see these words in contrast like virgin, queen, mistress, daughter, and then those positions somewhat of power are actually going to be brought low. And we'll see this word sit down or sit multiple times, telling them to be humbled. And even though they don't want to, God will humble them. Look at verse 5. Sit in silence and go into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall no more be called the mistress of kingdoms. I was angry with my people. I profaned my heritage. I gave them into your hand. You showed them no mercy. On the aged you made your yoke exceedingly heavy. God uses their wickedness. He uses it to bring discipline upon them, but now he's going to free them. And this discipline will be a shock to the Babylonians. Just as he disciplined Judah, he will now discipline Babylon. And it's going to be a shock, not because they didn't see it coming, but because they were so arrogant and prideful that they believed they would never be disciplined. Babylon's pride and arrogance put them in a place where they believed no one could ever touch them. They would never need to answer to another authority. They were the authority. And this is a very, very scary place to be. When we become our own authority, it's a very scary place to be. When a person realizes they don't want to nor need to, they think, Submit to any authority. Destruction is not far behind. Think about your children for a second. Any of us who are parents recognize, especially in this day and age, that if your children are not brought up from an earliest age respecting authority, there will come a point where they will recognize, I don't have to respect you. Whether it be that they get to physical strength 
or whether it just dawns on them that really there is no authority unless they want to submit to it, they will fight against it. See, authority is not taken and it's not manipulated. It's given out of trust. And this is what our world doesn't get because anyone in power is trying to manipulate and steal authority rather than laying down their lives so that others will trust them to submit to them. This is the difference between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of the world. And I'm sad to say that even in the supposed kingdom of heaven, the church, we don't see this. We see men and women trying to take authority, trying to empower themselves alone and no one else. You see this in church leadership structures. We as a church leadership are really reviewing and looking at our church leadership right now and how it works because we recognize that the model we come from has one Moses at the top and he is not really accountable and the other elders are usually yes men. And so it's really scary. It's scary for you. It's scary for me being the guy with the biggest mouth. A Moses who's left on his own will fall. And so for your sake and for my sake and for our leadership's sake, we're looking at and altering the way that we're going to operate as a church and our leadership structure so that there is true equality and submission, mutual submission within leadership. And we'll go more into that over the coming months to let you know what's happening. But the reality is, is that when anyone in the church believes that they alone are the sole authority, you just wait. That church will fall. And that leader will fall. You see, we are called to be people that submit to authority. We have the institutions in which submission to authority is there. In Babylon, they didn't think that they needed to submit to authority. They had prided themselves on the fact that they were who they were, and they didn't need to answer to anybody. And we see this starting in, chapter, or starting in verse 7. Take a look. You said, this is God speaking to Babylon, I shall be mistress forever, so that you did not lay these things to heart or remember their end. Now therefore hear this, you lover of pleasures, who sits securely, who say in your heart, I am, and there is no one beside me. I shall not sit as a widow or know the loss of children. These two things shall come to you in a moment, God is saying. In one day, the loss of children and widowhood shall come upon you in full measure, in spite of your many sorceries and the great power of your enchantments. You felt secure in your wickedness. You said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray. And you said in your heart, I am and there is no one besides me. Notice he repeats this twice. This is a common refrain of the autonomy of the American Christian. The autonomy of the saint, I believe, is a perverse understanding of the Bible. I am and there's no one else who can tell me what to do. It doesn't matter if I'm part of a body. I'm a Christian moving around on my own. Guys, this is exactly what Babylon said. I am, me and God, and there's no one beside me. He says you felt secure in this idea. Verse 11, but evil shall come upon you which you will not know how to charm away. Disaster shall fall upon you, for which you will not be able to atone. And ruin shall come upon you suddenly, of which you know nothing. Man, God is not pulling the punches here. Let's take a look at these things that he says 
are the signs of walking in this kind of arrogance and pride. Here's the first one. Exploitation of others. Write this down. Exploitation of others. One of the first signs of arrogance and pride is using others for your own devices. Using others for your own devices. Now, this can be massively destructive in a way where people are abused and harmed beyond our imagination. And this happens in our world all the time, unfortunately. And this is the exploitation of the people of Judah there in verse 6. It says, you exploited even the aged, even the ones who are old. You put a burden on them. Babylon exploited them to their own use. But guys, I think that it can also be somewhat innocent. Sometimes we don't even recognize that we're using other people, other relationships, even ones that were good mutual friendships, really for our own purposes. How are you serving me? What are you doing for me? What have you done for me lately? Guys, that's that same heart. You see, the reality of what a Christian is, is greater love has no one than this, than that the Christian do what? Lay down his life for his friend. And if we aren't always trying to walk in that, we're going to fail, we're going to be imperfect in it, but if that is not our focus, how can I assist the other, then we're going to actually fall back into this. It's our neutral gear as humanity. What have you done for me lately? Second, we see a dismissal of authority. Verse 7, he says, I shall be mistress forever. In other words, he's saying, I will get away with my evil forever. No one can have authority over me. That is the surrounding philosophy of their idea. I am good and nobody can tell me what to do. Third, there's an arrogant autonomy. Now, if you're not familiar with this, autonomy, the word means a law unto yourself. Auto, yourself, know me, law. You're a law unto yourself. We fight the world and beat up on the world. You guys all think that you have truth. Your truth is relative to you as an individual. Guys, it's no different in the church. We hide behind this false veil of spirituality. Well, the Holy Spirit told me something different than they told you. That's not how the Spirit works, guys. The Spirit unifies. It doesn't divide. And so when we grasp on to the beautiful doctrine of the Holy Spirit and use that as the veil to hide behind, to be autonomous so we have to answer to no one, we're actually messing with Scripture in a massive way. And this arrogant autonomy is what he said twice there. I am and there is no one besides me. This is what Babylon spoke to the world. It's a statement of outright rebellion against God and his positions of authority and the authority he puts in place. Over and over within the last few chapters, God has claimed that he is God and there is no other. You see how similar that phrase is? That's a person saying, I am the authority and there is no other. Well, that's a bad place to be. Because that's the statement of Babylon. It's a statement of smug selfishness and autonomy. Fourth, we see entitlement. Entitlement. Man, it's a good thing that our society doesn't have this problem, huh? (laughs) Entitlement. And for us that are older in the room, yes, I'm lumping myself in with you. I'm getting there. It's not just the young folks right? I've been waiting for my whatever, fill in the blank, my car, my career, my child, 
my spouse, my retirement. Doesn't matter what age. There's a sense of entitlement. He calls them lovers of pleasure. You lovers of pleasure, verse 8, who sit securely, who say in your heart, and there's that autonomy, I am, and there's no one beside me. And then lastly, what we see in them. Not only this right to feel comfortable, the right to be your own authority. Let me pause for a second. Isn't that what our society thrives on? That's what our whole country was built on, that that is a right to be accountable to no one. Would you admit that with me? Our entire society is, it is my right to be accountable to no one. And then lastly, what we see in them in Babylon is a smug superiority. I'm getting away with it. No one has the right to discipline me. No one sees me, he says at one point. No one sees me. And he finishes with this idea of your wisdom. Your wisdom has led you astray. They'd gone to such a level of pride and arrogance that they thought their wisdom, their way of doing things, their idea of how things should go is the only way. Let's take a look at verse 12 and see what God says. Stand fast in your enchantments and your many sorceries with which you have labored from your youth. Perhaps you may be able to succeed. Perhaps you may inspire terror. You are wearied with your many counsels. Let them stand forth and save you. Those who divide the heavens, who gaze at the stars, who at the new moons make known what shall come upon you. Behold, they are like stubble. The fire consumes them. They cannot deliver themselves from the power of the flame. No coal for warming oneself is this. No fire to sit before. Such to you are those with whom you have labored, who have done business with you from your youth. They wander about, each in his own direction. There is no one to save you. This is a scary spot for Babylon to be in. The reality was that in their autonomy and their smug superiority, they had dispersed in such a way spiritually that not only were they not under their own sorceries, their own councils, and their own gods, but they had each gone about in their own direction. Everyone serving their own appetite, their own wisdom. And man, this is at its core really what happens in all of mankind, isn't it? It's what happened in the garden. An idea of selfishness, trusting only in self, distrusting God. You see, in the garden, here's what God did. He said, hey, guys, I am your authority. I'm your king. But I want you to trust me. I've provided for you, and I'm going to give you everything. Here's what I ask, is that you serve me as my sub-regents, the the under-kings, the vice presidents, so to speak. And you guys take care of what I've given you. And you, Adam, you're the image of me. You need to be under my authority. And you, Eve, you need to trust that because Adam is under my authority, you can be under his. And what happened? All of it broke. One after the other, Eve and then Adam, doubted God's goodness, chose to take on their own wisdom and their own perception of what happened, Listen to the lie that God is not good and become autonomous to themselves. But guys, here's the truth. We're not created for that. And that's why it leads to brokenness and destruction. We're created to be under the authority of God and submitted to one another. That's how he built us as humans. 
That's where peace and wholeness comes from, is to be fully submitted to God first and foremost, and then to trust one another to also be submitted to God so that we can submit to one another. God's message to the wicked is clear here. To those operating in their own authority, it's that they will be brought low. They think that they're autonomous, but they're not. And because it's directed at Babylon, many, many theologians will read this and go, man, this was actually great news for the Jew. The Jew looked at this and went, yeah, give them what for? Those smug Babylonians. About time you dealt with them, those guys out there. But reading on through chapter 48, it helps us rightly put it in context. We start to realize that we too, even as Christians in 2017, all too often we think of them out there, the other people that are autonomous and rebellious and wicked, those obstinate ones. But the reality is that all have fallen short of the glory of God. Amen? All are together depraved. And there is none righteous, not even one. And if we are not careful to repent every moment of every day from the innate rebellion that's in us, that stirs in us all the time, the selfishness, the arrogance, the looking out for number one, then we stay in rebellion just like the Babylonians. And just as we will see God's chosen people did. And in doing so, we unfortunately lose a massive influence, not only to disciple one another because there's no trust, but any redemptive influence on society is dead at that moment. Why would they look to us? We have nothing for them. And so the next thing we're going to see here is, unfortunately, Israel's resemblance to Babylon. Israel's unfortunate resemblance to Babylon. You can almost imagine the exiles hearing this last chapter and being comforted by it. It would be like the Jews sitting in Nazi-occupied territory hearing over the radio that the Allies are coming. And they think, finally, the Nazis are being brought down. And that is true, right? The Allies are coming, they would say. That's good. But Isaiah steps in to speak to the people of God here to help them understand. And notice what he starts out with. He, he almost goes in realizing that they're not hearing him. That his warning to Babylon is just as much a warning for them. Look at verse 1 of chapter 48. Hear this, O house of Jacob, who were called by the name of Israel and who came from the waters of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord and confess the God of Israel, but not in truth or right. For they call themselves after the holy city and stay themselves on the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is his name. Israel was called to be a people that would reflect the character of the God that they serve, the Lord, Yahweh. Remember this, we've gone over it many times in Isaiah. This is from Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 5 through 8. See, I have taught you, this is to the people of Israel, God saying it, statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? Their laws and their activity was going to make them a beacon to the world to say this is who we serve, the God that has given us these laws and rules, not to be legalistic and mean and a killjoy, but to help us show what it is to love one another and to love God. 
This is why Jesus came along and he said, guys, all the laws that I gave hang upon two things. What are they? Love God and love one another. And yet notice the wording here in Isaiah 48. They swear by the name of the Lord and confess the God of Israel, but not in truth or right. These people that God's talking to said, we are believers. We are followers. They proclaim to be from God's city and supposedly have, them as, have him as their foundation. And yet, they look just like Babylon. Let's take a look. Verse 3. The former things I declared of old, they went out from my mouth and I announced them. And suddenly I did them and they came to pass. Because I know that you, house of Jacob, you are obstinate. And your neck is an iron sinew. And your forehead brass. I declared them to you from of old. Before they came to pass, I announced them to you. Lest you should say, my idol did them. My carved image and my metal image commanded them. You have heard, now see all this, and will you not declare it? From this time forth, I announce to you new things, hidden things that you have not known. They are created now, not long ago. Before today, you have never heard of them. Lest you should say, behold, I knew them. You have never heard, you have never known. From of old, your ear has not been opened. For I knew that you would surely deal treacherously, and that from before birth, you were called a rebel." Oosh. Obstinate, rebellious, stiff-necked, stubbornly refusing to change their opinion or chosen course of action despite God's attempts to persuade them to do so. I am going to stand firm in what I believe and I am not moving. When it's in a child, we think, man, what a rebellious little cuss. When it's in an adult, we go, oh, good for them. They've got principle. (laughs) One commentator on this section says, the neck of iron is one incapable of bowing in submission, indicating self-assurance. A forehead of bronze indicates an opinionated person with a set mind. Unfortunately, I believe this is a word for the church today and for mission for me. I believe that this idea of self-assurance has so crept into the church that we can't even see it anymore. Each of us is our own authority and need to answer to no one. How do you know if that's you? Let me ask a couple quick, simple questions for you. And I want to ask you in this moment to simply introspect and think through what is the truth of the answer of these questions. First one, here we go. Are you teachable? Are you teachable? How do you know? Parents, if you want to know if your child that's enrolled in school is teachable, who do you ask? Guys, ask your teacher if you're teachable. Please, come ask me. I'll be happy to tell you. Many of you in this room, you absolutely are. And it is the joy and honor of my life in my sinful humanity to somehow walk with you creeping towards godliness. Some of you are absolutely not. And you take pride in that fact. 
God said, you have never heard, you have never known. From of old, your ear has not been opened. This is about teachability. Guys, I would be absolutely lying to you if I said I knew everything or had everything figured out. But I know who does, and that's the Spirit dwelling in you and dwelling in me. And together, we are a massively powerful and impressive force. And if any one of us chooses to say, I know more than any of the rest of you, then we're not letting that power fully move. The Spirit is who teaches us through the Word of God and nothing else. Not by our own opinions, not by our own doctrine, not by our own experiences of what worked and what didn't in previous churches. Are you teachable? It's a good question to ask yourself. Secondly, to whom are you in submission? Who have you determined in your mind as an authority that if they come to you with a concern, you are ready and willing to listen? I'll tell you who my guys are, and I'll tell you who my friends that are female are that I will listen to. It's not because I won't listen to all of you. In some capacity, way, shape, or form, I will always listen to every single one of you. But I will tell you right now, if one of my elders or deacons who have laid down their life for me, my family, and this church come to me and say, Hans, I have a concern, I'm all ears. If one of their wives come to me who have laid down their life for me, my family, and this church come to me with a concern, I'm all ears. There are a couple people in here who have laid down their life simply in friendship. They have no title. They have no place in this church of power. But they have laid down their life and they will take it upon themselves to have uncomfortable conversations with me to help lead me in godliness. And I will tell you right now, if those people come to me and they say, I have a concern, I don't act like Saul and go, but I err, mm, ah. I act like David and I say, I will listen and I repent. Who is that for you? Who do you have in your life that that will occur? Some of you right now are having a hard time thinking up one name. Spouses, it should absolutely be your spouse. No questions asked. Who are you in submission to? For some of us in here, it depends. Well, if they come to me and they have logic and reason and biblical backing, then I'll listen to them. Guys, that's not how it works. By the fruit of someone's life, not by the fruit of their argument or debate, by the fruit of someone's life, you choose whether or not they are a person God has placed in your life to submit to. Here's why. I'll take Patrick. He's in line sight. He's one of my elders. I've walked with him for a while. This guy is godly. I understand why Courtney married him. Okay? He's a goofball and he makes mistakes just like I do, just like David does. But when he comes to me and he says, Hans, and that teaching, you raised your voice a little bit too loud. You were a little too heavy. I go, yeah, okay. See, the reality is, is by the fruit of Patrick's life and the fruit of David's life, I know I can trust them. Why? Because they've laid down their lives. Therefore, I know that they're not in it for themselves. And I know that God is working through them, not because they're really cool dudes or because they're so godly. Oh, man, they're so holy. 
No, it's because they've laid down their lives. I trust them to be coming to me for the right reasons. You need to have people that you choose to submit to. Now, if Patrick starts going off the rails and starts doing things that are not biblical and starts coming up with heresy that I'm like, where did you get that? The book of Uliah? What are you talking about? Okay. Well, first of all, he'll be removed as an elder. Second of all, he'll be put on suspension and discipline. And third of all, well, I'll know by the fruit of his life that I shouldn't listen to him anyway. I don't get to pick and choose when Patrick comes to me to say, I'll agree with you on this one or not this one. There's a reason God put him in my life. There's a reason God put David Lacey in my life. There's a reason God put Kelly Rasmussen in my life. Who are you in submission to? Third, this one is going to grate you because it sounds very self-serving. When I say church leadership, what is your immediate response? Well, I don't really believe in leadership. I think that was an Old Testament thing. Oh, come on, guys. Here's what I do know. I know that a great number of you, possibly even the majority of you, have been abused and harmed by church leadership. Men that are sinners, just like me, just like Patrick, just like David, just like our deacons and deaconesses. And I totally understand why you don't trust leadership. It's like when I sit down with a spouse who's in their second marriage and they're having a hard time trusting their new spouse. I I get it. If your first spouse was unfaithful to you, I get it. But here's the deal, folks. If in that case that spouse continues to sit there in distrust while their spouse is laying down their life, you're going to ruin your marriage just like you will ruin this church by not trusting leadership who is constantly laying down their life for you. You've got to trust at some point. No, I'm never going to get hurt again. Well, you're also never going to be at peace again. You've got to take a chance. Is it with respect and trust that we're going to lay down our lives for you, to lead you and love you, or is it with a bit of justified suspicion? That's justified. It's justified if you've been hurt in churches, which many of us have. I've been hurt in churches. I innately don't want to trust David and Patrick, but I'm called to. We can't always reserve the right to overrule never fully buying in just because we've been hurt. And that's, that's the truth of what the Word says. Because if we don't understand these things, guys. What do you do with these scriptures? Here you go. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. What does that mean? If it doesn't mean submit to one another. Hebrews thirteen seventeen. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy. (laughs) Not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. I want to be a person that when I go to Patrick and David, they don't go, oh, here comes Hans again. Oh, Lord, why did you make us volunteer elders with this guy? Right? No, I want them to go, oh man, this is going to be good. This is for the kingdom. Hans has got something. Let's, let's talk about it. 
For Judah, their pride had undeniably, undeniably caused them to become treacherous to God and to one another. What they deserved and what you and I deserve because of the innate traits of selfishness and autonomy, arrogance, we deserve hell. We deserve the wrath of the almighty, holy God. See, if you look at them, it says, I knew that you would deal treacherously. I knew that you would forsake the covenant between me and you and one another. And they, like us, deserve hell for this. If you're sitting here today going, man, I, I, this is me. I'm arrogant. I'm, I'm self-autonomous. I, this is everything. Yeah, I, Hans, I get it. I'll join the club. Join the club. I was schooled in the art of arrogance as a basketball player, as a Notre Dame alum, as a seminary student. That's not the heart of God. So what do you do? How do you deal with this thing that is so innate, that creeps up all the time, that makes me want to self-protect, that makes me want to say, I am the only authority, you are not in my life. We're lost because we are broken in this way, but for the grace of God. And this is where we start to jump in in verse 9. God says, For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, Israel, Judah, Christian church, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. So he calls to them and he says to them, guys, I am a God who is faithful and I have covenanted with you that I will be faithful and that I will love you and draw you to myself and restore you even though you don't deserve it. Amen? Amen. None of us deserve his covenant commitment to us, but he is doing it to us anyway. Why did God choose Israel? Why has he chosen us? Not because we're good or cool or better than anybody else, but because he's merciful. He's good. He's faithful to his covenant promise. And he promised at the beginning of this book that he would follow it through to the end. It's simply because of his goodness that he saved us. He's not required to, and we do not deserve it. We're stiff-necked and obstinate. We won't bow. And yet, how deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure. That he should give his only son to make me a wretch his treasure. What does it mean that Jesus gave his son, or that the Father gave his son, Jesus Christ, in death and resurrection, to make you and me wretches his treasure? Well, he continues on. He says, Listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel whom I called. I am he, I am the first, and I am the last. My hand laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand forth together. Assemble, all of you, and listen. Who among them has declared these things? And then he says this odd statement here. The Lord loves him. He shall perform his purpose on Babylon. Well, guys, this is odd, but in the Hebrew, it's very clear to understand that the Lord loves him as a proper name. And he's speaking of Cyrus. He's finishing off the section on Cyrus here. He's saying, the Lord loves him. The one who I've called, he shall perform his purpose on Babylon. And Cyrus, his arm of strength shall be against the Chaldeans. I, even I, have spoken and called him. I have brought him and he will prosper in his way. Draw near to me. Hear this. From the beginning, I have not spoken in secret. From the time it came to be, I have been there. 
And now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. This is such a hard portion of text because it goes back and forth dealing with different characters and different voices, but it finishes off here with this statement, an autobiographical statement, and now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. The majority of commentators agree that this is one of the biggest mentions in Isaiah of the Trinity. That God the Father has sent his Son, the one who's speaking, the Messiah, and he sent with him his Holy Spirit to do the work. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord, your God, who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way you should go. Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Your offspring would have been like the sand and your descendants like its grains. Their name would never be cut off or destroyed before me. And he finishes with this command. Go out from Babylon, flee from Chaldea, declare this with a shout of joy and proclaim it. Send it to the end of the earth. Say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. They did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He made water flow for them from the rock. He split the rock and the water gushed out. He has this statement, I'm sending Cyrus to redeem you because I'm a God who redeems. But I have greater plans than this and I'm sending my servant who we're about to go into and understand. And so he commands the people. He says, go out from Babylon, go out from Chaldea. But he's not saying, leave the local proximity. He's not saying, go to a different building. He's not saying, run away to the wilderness. He's saying, step out from among their culture. Step out from among who they are, how they think, what their heart is like. Step out from their arrogance and pride. That's what he's asking them to do. And this section finishes with this command of, leave this. But you might say, and I might say, Lord, that didn't work the first time. You use in verse 21 Exodus language that you led them through the waters, but they went into Canaan and they still worshipped other gods. They didn't learn. They were still arrogant. And we might say if we know our Bibles, Israel left Babylon and they were still arrogant. The prophet Haggai comes along and says, oh my goodness, you guys are so busy building your own homes, you're forgetting to build the temple You're building your own kingdoms and lives. You're forgetting God's worship. Malachi comes along and says, you guys are so concerned with yourselves, so arrogant that you've broken covenant with God and one another, that you've robbed from God your tithes and offerings. It didn't work, God. They stayed arrogant. They stayed in their own power of of self and selfishness. You see, simply moving locales, reading some new books, Self-help, it won't work. How on earth can we defeat the pride in our lives? There's a very simple answer. Look to the servant for victory over pride. Look to the servant for victory over pride. And that servant that's going to be spoken of here in chapter 49 and in coming chapters as we go through This servant is the messianic figure, the one that would bring salvation, the one that we know as Yeshua, Jesus, Yahweh saves. That's what his name means. He's the servant of Yahweh that comes and saves the Redeemer, the Lord. For us to defeat the pride in our own lives, we can't just white-knuckle it. We have to first cast our eyes on him and keep them there. Take a look at 49 verse 1. Listen to me, O coastlands. He's talking not just to Judah here. He's talking to the entire world, including us, Gentiles. 
and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Now, you might look at this and say, well, he just said it's your servant Israel. This is talking about Israel. No, guys, he's going to go on to say in a couple of verses that he was sent to save Israel. Israel is a name that means I will reign with God. This is the servant Yeshua, the servant Jesus, the Messiah. Look at how it describes him so beautifully. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. Well, yeah, if you're born, you kind of come from the body of your mother. Why are you pointing that out? Because our Savior came from a virgin birth. And God named him while he was in the womb. This will be Yeshua. Yahweh saves. And as he grew and taught, he made his mouth like a sharp sword, discerning between flesh and spirit. One day he will come, Revelation says, and out of his mouth will come his word and it will so penetrate the people of the world that it will destroy those who are against him. He hid him away. The whole Old Testament, there's this idea, but no one knows who he is. It's almost as if the Messiah is hidden, especially to the Jews. But yet he would use him. He would use him like an arrow that penetrates the heart. You are my servant. You will be glorified. This is speaking of Jesus Christ. And notice that he, like Israel, is called. He is given a name, just like it says in chapter 48, verse 1. And what he will first do, as we'll see in the coming chapters, is he will stand in for Israel, and he will do what Israel couldn't, truly shining a reflection of God's character to the world, being fully obedient, being sinless, tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. He is the one that will redeem not only those individuals who trust from the people group of Israel, but all those who trust him in the midst of the rebelliousness of the nations. And so let's finish up with the last couple of verses here. Take a look at 49.4. The Messiah, who we know as Jesus, comes up and says, But I said, I have labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Oh, how many of you ever feel like that? I've done all this work and put all this effort into it. And that's what I get. Oh, man. Even Jesus himself is in all points tempted as we are. He's been spending all of his effort and energy over eternity trying to build up the people of Israel. And he looks at him and he goes, uh oh. Father, that's, that's what I got. Ugh. Right? But unlike Israel, who then reacts to that, unlike us, who reacts to that, unlike Babylon, who reacts to that and says, see, it wasn't worth it. I'm doing my own thing now. Father, I'm doing my own thing. Look at what he says. In pure obedience, he says, yet surely, even though I feel that way, my right is with the Lord and my recompense is with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. In other words, that's too small. I, the Father says, I will make you the servant 
as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. See, this servant, by his obedience, by his trusting in Yahweh, even when he feels not like it, by saying, I trust you, Lord, this doesn't look like it's working, but I trust that you are at work, and I trust you, so therefore I will continue in my work. And these simple statements, he's stepping into the place of Israel, and he's acting in humility and trust rather than suspicion and autonomy. He's reminding himself that he can look to the good father, the one that desires only good for his creation, and call upon what he has said and what he has planned and trust in him. And at the end of the day, our intense desire, just like he was tempted to do, it comes from self-protection. And quite honestly, guys, it comes, I know this from experience, from an underlying belief that I can't even truly trust God. Look at what he's done with my life. Look at how he's allowed people to harm me. Look at how he's allowed those I've submitted to to damage me. I don't know that I can even trust him. Left to our own devices, this is what happens. And this is what happened in the garden. When we are left to ourselves, pride creeps in because we are left to our own authority, our own logic, our own opinions. And we will decide that we know best because it's how we are wired. Looking out for number one is what Eve did in the garden. It's what you and I do every day. And that's why we need wisdom outside of ourselves, help from outside of ourselves. Because the church, if we don't realize this and recognize this, we will continue to lose our divine influence in the the world around us. But God said, what is it that shows the world and has an effect on the world? Your love for one another. And guys, love is submission. Love is to lay down your life for the sake of the other. So how do we do this? Well, we must absolutely cast our eyes upon the servant of Isaiah 49. Without Jesus, without his atoning sacrifice that actually kills the sin in our lives and the distrust that we have for one another, the distrust we have for God, without his example, his model, without his teachings, we have nothing. We are without hope. But if we cast our eyes upon Jesus, if we look into the fullness of his face and understand who he is and hold on to it, we will slowly change from the inside out. We will trust that our right is with the Lord and our recompense is with God. And because of his sacrifice, his laying down his life, guess what we can do? We can trust him. We can trust him with our lives because he laid down his life for us. Guys, why is there distrust in the church? We're too busy with our own lives, schedules, and finances to lay our lives down for one another. And trust won't come in mission or any other church until we put our own priorities, our own desires, our own values to rest and freely lay our lives down for one another. Trusting in him first that he will affect the people around us that we are submitting to. And when they don't submit to him, we lovingly call that to their attention to bring them back into submission so that we continue walking in trust. This is the only way that trust can be fostered. This is what the church is supposed to be everyone willingly laying down their lives for one another. 
And we can do this not because of our own effort or because we've learned something new today in the Scriptures or because definitely not because it's comfortable, but we can do it because He first did it. We can follow His lead and we can trust that He is at work in His people. Again, remember that when Jesus calls us out of Babylon, He's not calling us to simply leave the city or leave culture or operate in a different behavior. He's calling us to have a different mindset, a different heart, to trust God to work within his people and his church. Hold one another accountable to the word of God and watch as that mutual submission and love one for another gives us a massive redemptive influence in the midst of the world. Because they will look at that and that is the one thing that they will see, that love and submission for one another and they will say, there is no way that that can come from anything else other than the miracle of Jesus Christ. There is no way that can come from work. That can only come from the regeneration that works according to the God of the universe. And so today, just as we finished with last week, it's repetitive, but we're going to do it again. I want to cast our eyes upon Jesus And I want us to read together and be reminded of what Christ did for us, but also what he calls us to now that we are his. And I want us to read together through Philippians 2, verses 1 through 8. Let's read together Philippians 2. Follow with me. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to... Oh, sorry, that's my bad. (laughs) Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, close your eyes and just listen. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you, each of you, each of you, each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others.
Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he, the God of the universe who did not have to do it but did it out of love, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. If you are here today and you don't realize how much Jesus loves you, I want to very clearly tell you that while you were yet a sinner in full rebellion against God, he looked at you and he died for you because he loves you. Don't wait one more second to give your life to the one that has given his life for you. And for those of you that do know him, recognize that Philippians 2 has no asterisks, has no qualifications, has no ifs, ands, or buts. It is a command from the king that we say we are accountable to. And he calls us to love one another, become nothing at the foot of one another, to lay down our values, our opinions, our lives, because he did so for us, and to walk in that and reflect that to the world.